Our partner today is Home Biogas. The Home Biogas system is a backyard appliance that turns your food scraps into renewable gas for cooking. The process is a lot like composting, but with Home Biogas, you capture the methane released in the composting process and put it to use in your kitchen. You can stop relying on fossil fuels for cooking and turn to a natural and sustainable source. For every two pounds of food you put in, you'll get an hour of cooking gas. It's easy to use. All you have to do is put your food scraps into the appliance, and bacteria will break down your food into biogas that flows right into your kitchen. If you want to create a sustainable circular economy in your backyard, get started now at homebiogas.com. Use coupon code PERMACULTURE18 at checkout to receive a $50 discount on your purchase. That code is PERMACULTURE18 to get $50 off. A little bit of stewardship as we get started today. I would like to thank the new Patreon members who joined us in July. Tomas, Angela, Lee, David, Elizabeth, Michael, Christopher, and Benjamin. You bring the total number of Patreon supporters to 145. Also thank you to Michael, James, Juha, and Stephen for raising your pledge amounts. If you'd like to receive a shout-out and other unique rewards, find out more at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. The winners for the recent giveaways of books from Victoria Miller have been selected. Melissa Parade won the drawing for a copy of From No Need to Sourdough, and Patreon supporter Stephen W. will receive his own signed edition of Craft Distilling. Thank you to both of you and to everyone who entered. As you may have recently heard, I started the Summer to Fall fundraiser early this year, as I'm in need of urgent oral surgery, which is scheduled for September 6th. As I'm putting this episode together, I still need to raise another $400 by September 1st to make that happen. If you are able to, please give by visiting paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast or sending something in the mail. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. This is The Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. My guest today is Ben Goldfarb, who joins me to talk about his new book, Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. Drawing from his work and our experiences in resource management, conservation, and environmental education, we talk about the role beavers had in creating and shaping the landscape, history, and people of the United States, and the importance of reintroducing and protecting beavers to return the world to the wetter, boggier place it once was. Enjoy this conversation with Ben, and I'll join you again afterward. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write about beavers? My background briefly is I worked in ecology for a while. I worked for the National Park Service briefly uh, doing invasive fish control. I tagged sea turtles in, in North Carolina. I did urban forestry research in the Bronx. So I had sort of this environmental background. And after doing that for a few years, I, I kind of got into journalism, writing about, about nature and, and environmental science uh, and ecology. And then uh, a few years ago, I was, I was working for a magazine called High Country News, which is a, a really wonderful magazine that covers environmental issues throughout the American West. And while I was there, I, I was living in Seattle, and, and uh, I happened to meet this guy named Kent Woodruff, who is, he's a, a wildlife biologist uh, in central Washington in a place called the Metow Valley. And Kent uh, was then the director of the Metow Beaver Project. And basically what the Metow Beaver Project does is they trap nuisance beavers, you know, beavers that are flooding people's property or cutting down their trees or what have you on private property. 
and they relocate these beavers to public land, to the headwaters of the Okanagan Wenatchee National Forest uh, in central Washington. So I spent, I spent about a week with Kent and his crew relocating beavers and visiting sites where they had moved beavers to. And the thing that was so powerful being with Kent, who's a really amazing interpreter of landscape and uh, just an incredible guide to wildlife and forests and ecosystems. I mean, the thing that was so compelling was that the places where they had put beavers were just completely transformed. You know, I think that uh, a lot of people, myself included, have this vision of a, a stream as this narrow, clear, babbling brook, you know, tri trickling over the rocks. You could wade right through it or jump right across it. You know, and the places that Kent had moved beavers were nothing like that, right? There were these sprawling marshes and swamps and the water was really sluggish and dark and the bottom was covered in silt and it smelled kind of funky because there was lots of, you know, dead and, and dying vegetation. And this epiphany, I guess, dawned on me with Kent's help, which was that this was really what most of North America looked like, you know, that our, our sort of platonic conception of a stream as this babbling brook is really uh, a historical artifact caused by the elimination of beavers from so many places. So I think it was that, it was sort of that realization, you know, that, that everything I thought I knew about what a stream should look like was wrong because I was, I was forgetting beavers. And that turned into uh, a few articles for High Country News, and that uh, eventually became a book with uh, Chelsea Green's help. What you just said reminds me a lot of the places that I've gone through over the years when it comes to my exposure to beaver. And it was Though you wouldn't necessarily know it looking at me, as I kind of have this middle-aged dad appearance, I have spent a good bit of time in the woods small game hunting. I've enjoyed fishing over the years in a lot of outdoor sportsman-style activities. And then it was, there was an opportunity to go get a trapper's license. And while we were there, the game wardens, though I think they're actually called fish and wildlife officers now, were talking about what's involved in trapping beaver, because we still have them here in Pennsylvania. And they were getting into how dangerous trapping beaver are for individuals because of needing to set lines underwater and all these other really crazy things, which made me want to look into the ecology of these animals more. And it was as I did so, I had young children at the time who so wound up watching a PBS documentary on beavers and getting to see these giant dams. And it was also about that same time that platonic conception that you reference is also interesting because I was taking a master's program in park and resource management. And so we were looking at the history of resource management in the United States and how until about the last 50 years or so that there's been this idea of like the static wilderness that we're seeing in the modern era as Gifford Pinchot and others were establishing the park service, thinking about natural landscapes, that they were looking at the landscape that had already been transformed from the 17th through the 19th century, that had removed all of these apex predators, that had removed the eco system engineers like the beavers. And now it's only been, you know, in these last couple of decades that we're getting to understand what impacts they had in creating the abundance that we now have as kind of the legacy of their space in North America. Yeah, absolutely. I think that your point about Pinchot and others sort of perpetuating this idea of a, of a static landscape is a really good point because, I mean, Beavers do many things, but stasis is not one of them, right? Beavers are these incredible agents of, of stream dynamism. You know, they, they force streams onto their floodplain. 
they create multiple channels, they, they form islands. You know, a, a beaver ecosystem is this inherently shifting protean thing, right? I mean, you've got this amazing cycle where, you know, they build a dam, they create a pond over the course of years or decades or centuries, depending on the kind of the system, you know, the pond fills in with sediment, gradually becomes a wetland, then a wet meadow, then a forest again, and the cycle kind of restarts, right? So, so beavers are these incredible agents of just shifting ecosystems and, and landscapes. And, you know, the problem with that is, is that, you know, we humans tend to prefer things pretty static, right? We, you know, we, we like our, our roads and, our, and our, rail, our railroads and our power lines and our towns and our farms to basically stay put. And beavers, you know, beavers are kind of a countervailing force against that. So, you know, it's no wonder that, that beavers and humans don't uh, always get along super well. And, uh, you know, I think that we have, we have kind of fundamentally different visions of how a landscape should work. And that dynamic nature of the landscape is an interesting one as we try to have these conversations now in the 21st century about landscape restoration, or even just allowing a space to return to its natural cycles, be that beavers or forest fires or allowing predators to roam. And in encountering some of this modern nature writing, which is kind of new to me, to kind of rediscover this, as a lot of my reading was first around the big game hunting of Hemingway and others during the beginning of the 20th century, then reading Aldo Leopold and the Sand County Almanac, the writings of Rachel Carson. And then it was just like my love of nature just took me out into the world. And then being reintroduced to this writing through your work, which is just... I'll admit, I'm a, a huge fan of your book because it's not only poignant, because the impacts of these ecosystem engineers and the changes that they can have in creating a dynamic regenerative landscape that's needed now, but also it's funny. Some of the things you say, like, if you want to fix the landscape, there's a beaver for that. And what you're saying about beavers and then Dan Flores when it comes to coyotes or like in the beekeeper's lament about even though bees are not native, the impacts they have on human food systems and the things that we can do now to make a difference but also understanding that if we're going to do this, that in the case of bees, people are going to get stung. In the case of coyotes, yes, there's going to be some predation. And as you're saying in the case of beavers, that they're going to cause flooding and change floodplains in the way that we move water. But what can we do to live differently to account for that and allow this space for these animals that will benefit us in so many ways? Yeah, you know, and I'm really glad that you, that you brought up Aldo Leopold, because in, in some ways, I think, I think that us contemporary nature writers are, are basically just trying to complete the work that he began, you know, I mean, his obviously, well, so, you know, he has so many wonderful contributions to, to the fields of ecology and, and, and nature writing and just, you know, thinking about the world that we live in. And, you know, obviously that one of the, I mean, one of the, one of his seminal works that I always come back to, and, and I'm sure many other people do too, you know, is, is the whole thinking like a mountain concept, right? The notion that when you, when you, when you remove predators, you know, there are, profound impacts on vegetation and, and thus erosion and that, you know, and that, and that predators are really responsible for structuring ecosystems in a, in a very profound way. And that, you know, when we lost those predators uh, in, in this, this fit of cleaning up the, the, uh, the land for, for sheep and cattle and, and hunters and deer, you know, we, we did a lot of profound harm. And I think that beavers are, are much the same way, right? We didn't you know, we had we had this very myopic conception of them as hats, right? That's what that's what they were. They were, you know, they were pelts that we could turn into fashionable 
Victorian top hats. And of course, we fail to recognize just how essential they are for structuring North American ecosystems, for providing habitat, for storing water, for, for cycling nutrients, for doing all of these incredibly vital ecological, hydrological, even geological functions. You know, and I think that in a, in a lot of ways, what I'm trying to do in this book is, you know, do for beavers what Aldo Leopold did for wolves and coyotes, you know, to, to acknowledge that these are truly essential animals, that removing them had incredibly deleterious effects, and that bringing them back can help us solve all kinds of, all kinds of problems. So in a lot of ways, you know, I, I, I mean, I went to the Yale School of Forestry. Aldo Leopold is our most famous uh, alumnus. This past fall, I, I spent uh, a month at, at his former house in New Mexico doing a, a residency and just the chance to kind of follow his path. I mean, he's obviously this sort of inimitable genius who's, you know, who's, whose heights I can never hope to achieve. But, you know, I do, I do draw a lot of inspiration from him. And I'm, I'm glad you cited him as kind of a, a, a touchstone because he is, he is one for me as well. And it's all the work. I went to Slippery Rock University here in Pennsylvania for their parks and recreation program. And as part of our conversation there was about the different ways that we can approach our understanding of the landscape. And a lot of it is rooted in Otto Leopold's land ethic. And then, you know, the way that we can build and grow upon that in the time since that was written with changing laws and landscapes, but to update that and continue to use that idea that he presented as a way to interact and see the world. And it's such a useful lens as someone who cares about not only humanity, but also all of the other than human and the landscape. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I think that this, I, you know, I think that, well, the, well, the, the land ethic is basically right. It's just, you know, it's do unto the land as you would have done unto you, right? It's, it's applying, it's extending the golden rule to, you know, to sort of non-human communities, and that's exactly what what we need, I think, in the in the beaver context as well. You know, I'm, I mean, I'm certainly not a hardline anti-trapper, right? I talked I talked to many trappers uh, in the course of writing this book, and I have you know, nothing but respect for their ecological and biological knowledge. Uh, you know, I think a lot of them view themselves as conservationists. They are conservationists in a sense, but you know, but I also think that in many cases, our trapping regulations aren't really aligned with how powerful and important these animals are. You know, I think that, I mean, there, there's a, a case that uh, I talk about in the book where in Wyoming, there's a place where the Forest Service is trying to reintroduce beavers to create habitat for waterfowl. And meanwhile, the, the state agency, the, the Department of, of Game and Fish, is continuing to allow beavers to be trapped in the same area. So you've got the federal agency reintroducing beavers and the state agency immediately trapping them out or, or allowing them to be trapped out. And I just think that, you know, we can, we need to extend our, our land ethic or our sense of land ethic to beavers and to sort of recognize that, hey, you know, these, these guys are, they are more than nuisances and they are more than pelts. They're these dynamic landscape shapers and influencers. And we can have some trapping, but also recognize that the services that beavers are providing us are worth many, many thousands of dollars per animal. And the pelt is worth $10. So from a simple sort of ecosystem services cost-benefit analysis standpoint, you know, these animals are really worth a tremendous amount more alive than they are dead. And, and how can we align our, our regulatory systems to acknowledge that fact? 
with our backgrounds, I think that we could get into a very technical conversation about agency capture and, you know, the way to value natural resources and whether a financial figure is the right way to do it. Right. And that's one thing that, that I, I kind of bumped into again and again working in this book was, was you know, I'm, I'm constantly writing about how valuable beavers are. And that's, you know, it's still and that's still kind of a, a utilitarian framework, right? I'm, I'm still talking about beavers as this tool or this thing that we can manipulate to do our bidding, you know, to filter out our pollution and store our irrigation water and, you know, create habitat for ducks so that we can shoot them. I think talking in that kind of ecosystem services language is, is helpful and important for a lot of people who wouldn't otherwise care about beavers. But at the same time, I mean, they're also just amazing animals, right? They're, they're these incredible, unbelievably industrious, brilliant engineers. And, you know, watching them do their work, you know, I, I, here in Northampton, I, I live near a, a really spectacular beaver pond where the beavers are pretty well acclimated to people and, and they, they kind of go about their business, whether you're watching them or not, which is sort of unusual, right? Beavers are, are generally pretty shy and retiring. So we, we have a nice, a nice acclimated beaver colony. And just, I mean, just, just watching them, is just, uh, it's, it's so inspiring and, and moving and, and poignant in a lot of ways. I mean, they're just, you know, they're just extraordinary animals that sort of expand our conception of what non-human species are capable of. So, that, you know, they have a lot of virtues beyond their their simple uh, usefulness to us. So I don't want to perpetuate the ecosystem services thing too much, but you know, it is it is kind of a useful framework to talk about these things. And I think about that framework for our conversations with land managers, homeowners, politicians, policymakers. But then I also think about the environmental education side and some of the work of people like David Orr and David Sobel about just creating a love for creatures like beavers and about, you know, talking about those connections that we can have with animals and the landscape, and especially for children, so that we're not introducing tragedies at a young age, but instead encouraging hope and dreams and a love of the natural world. And I'm wondering, you know, we talked about some where you encountered beavers and started writing about them, but when did you fall in love with beavers and really feel engaged and called by this work and the creation of this book? You know, I, I think that certainly I've, I've fallen much more in love with beavers during the course of writing this book, but I, I always felt like I had a beaver connection. You know, I, I don't, I think that I was primed to write this book by past experience in a lot of ways. You know, I remember um, when I was, yeah, I was probably, maybe I was 19 or 20 years old and I was, I was in Glacier National Park and uh, I was, I was at Two Medicine Lake, which is a really amazing lake and a beautiful campground. Um, and I got up, you know, at, at five o'clock in the morning to fish and I ended up encountering a pair of beavers, a, a mated pair at, at their lodge uh, on Two Medicine Lake. And they were just grooming each other with such fastidious devotion and care. And, and um, you know, they're, I mean, they're beavers generally made for life. They're, you know, they're monogamous, they're faithful, they're very, they're very family oriented. And, uh, you know, just seeing these, these beavers just engaged in this, in this incredibly human act of love toward each other, that was a really, a really powerful moment that uh, I think I think sort of you know, initiated my interest in beavers and, and my adoration for them, or my admiration for them too. I think that the thing that that makes beavers really easy to fall in love with is that their their behaviors are so complex, right? I mean, if you you know if you go bird watching, yes, you know there is a chance that that you might experience some kind of amazing bird behavior, but you know more likely you're just going to hear the bird somewhere in the forest and you're not going to really have a true encounter with it. Whereas you know beavers just they're just 
when you watch them work, their their behaviors are just so elaborate, right? They're, I mean, they're obviously felling trees, they're building dams, they're creating canals. People don't really think about beavers as, as canal builders, but they're incredible diggers. Um, and they, they make these really uh, extraordinary, uh, elaborate canal networks. So watching a beaver is, is in some ways fundamentally different from watching most other animals, right? Because they just do so much and, you know, I mean, this this year in, in Northampton, you know, this this beaver colony that we've been visiting, you know, it seems like every time we go there, their canals are a little bit longer. The kind of the spider web is, has it has extended deeper into the forest. You know, they've cut down trees over here. They've dragged some over there. You're never quite sure, you know, what are they thinking? What are they doing? What is the point of, you know, of this particular little ancillary dam that they created over here to store a little bit extra water there? They're doing so much and their behavior and their activities is so endlessly interpretable and you can just interact with them in a different way than you can other species. So from that standpoint, I think that they're a fantastic gateway into the kind of love and devotion that that you're talking about. You know, I think that there's just a wonderful way to, to connect with nature and to, and to empathize with this animal that, like us humans modifies its environment you know there's there's really there are really very few other species that that so deliberately engineer their surroundings it's a very human impulse right to modify your environment to maximize your your own food and shelter so i think that we can just connect with beavers in a way that it's it's hard to connect with other species and i i, I love that about them i think what you said there is you opened what you just shared about birds and birding you know, is an important distinction because it was one of the things when I started doing some bird watching, realizing that many of the birds that I would want to see, I'm likely not to, and how important it is to learn bird calls so that when you're out looking for them, because they are elusive and they alight on a branch that you're not looking at at the time and hear them call, that that's where that interaction comes. But with beavers, because they have a sense of place once they start dam building and establishing their lodge, that you can see the trees that have been chewed down on the edges of the waterways, that you can see the dam that they've built, you can see the lodge and the other animals that are brought into that space, even if you never see the beavers themselves, that you can see the impacts of the changes that they've made to the landscape around us. And just, yeah, it is an interesting point. There aren't many opportunities we have to watch geologic processes unfold in human timescales, right? I mean, most of the, most of the forces that created our world are layers of sediment being deposited over millions of years, whereas beavers modify landscapes in, you know, in the course of a single season. So there aren't too many other chances to actually watch our surroundings change um, like they do in beaver complexes. What were some things that you learned along the way that were really interesting that stood out or that were surprising that you didn't know before you went into writing this book? I think that as an ecologist or a person whose background is primarily in ecology, I didn't realize fully how important beavers are to our own sort of historical story as as uh, Americans. You know, that, I mean, that, that beavers are just unbelievably crucial to American history in all kinds of ways. I mean, first, of course, that they, they were intimately tied to indigenous American history. So many Native American tribes have have some kind of beaver spiritual connection certainly many tribes used beaver in, in some way uh, and then you know upon European arrival beavers were, were along with cod and timber 
the motivating resource that that just drove so many historical events. You know, it, it was when the pilgrims showed up, they owed a lot of money to their creditors back in England. You know, the only way they could, they could pay back their debts was by trading for pelts with Native Americans and shipping those furs back to Europe. Um, you know, so beavers, I mean, beavers made made possible the Massachusetts Bay Colony and the, and the Plymouth Colony. The Louisiana Purchase was motivated by the desire to secure new trapping grounds. You know, it was, it was beaver traders and trappers who discovered the route that became the Oregon Trail. Basically, everything that happened before, really before the Civil War, which loosely coincides timing-wise with the, the fall of the fur trade, was in some way motivated by beavers. You know, and of course, that's, that's lots of, lots of uh, things that we sort of look back on favorably or fondly, and then lots of really horrible things happened because of beavers too. You know, I mean, you know, there were smallpox epidemics, you know, among the, the Plains tribes, among the, the Blackfeet and the, the Mandan and other tribes that were spread by beaver traders moving up the Missouri River, you know, so it was that it was that fur trade that really perpetrated a lot of the, the tragedies that befell Native Americans at the hands of white people. So beavers, in some ways, they're behind so many important events, both wonderful and, and horrible. Um, you know, they're just this integral part of our story as a, as a nation and as a culture and as a people. I don't think I fully appreciated that before I started working on the book. One of the things that really stood out to me, and it's interesting because of my background in resource management, is at very often the park scale. You know, someone might rise up through the system and perhaps run a statewide organization or, you know, a large national park. But it tends to be a particular space, place and time. And in reading your book and some of the other modern nature writing, it really stood out to me how many of these animals were here when colonists and Europeans first arrived. How many ponds and lakes there are in North America just because some beavers decided to build a dam there. And I was really just amazed at how many animals were harvested for the fur trade. And now we have such a reduced number that we're trying to reintroduce and bring back into the landscape to start to make North America a bit wetter and boggier. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you, when you read historical accounts of, of explorers and trappers moving across the, the, the continent, you know, it's, it's mind-blowing just how wet the landscape was. You know, I mean, you have Lewis and Clark talking about traveling the Missouri and, and seeing beaver dams up every tributary as far as the eye could see to the mountains. You know, you have, you have explorers describing moving across Indiana and not being able to find a, a dry place to camp for a hundred miles because beavers have just so fully ponded everything up. Um, you just had this landscape that was completely dominated by, by these animals. And we've, we've come so far from that. But at the, sa at the same time, you know, I think that how we're doing from a kind of a, a beaver influence and conservation standpoint really depends on the timescale you use. So when, when Europeans arrived in, in North America, Nobody knows how many beavers there were, but there were probably several hundred million. The best estimate is, you know, is, is between 60 and 400 million. So a pretty wide range, but, you know, certainly that's a lot of beavers. By the turn of the 20th century, there were only 100,000 beavers left in North America, almost all of them in Canada. So the numbers were just drastically reduced by the fur trade. And today, thanks to conservation laws and, uh, and reintroductions, 
and economic forces that, that led to uh, decline in trapping, we probably have about 15 million beavers in, in North America. So, you know, that's, that's a 150-fold increase from their nadir. That's a really wonderful accomplishment, right? I mean, beavers are actually one of our great conservation success stories. And it's, and it's really beavers that we have to thank for many of our conservation laws. It was the decline of beavers along with passenger pigeons and bison and, and other, other species during the so-called age of extermination that made us wake up and realize that natural resources are finite, that we're capable of, of exterminating God's creation. So beavers are really a wonderful conservation success story if your barometer is, let's say, 1900. But, you know, if, you're, if your barometer is 1500, then yeah, certainly we have, we have only a tiny fraction of the, the beaver population that we historically had. So, you know, how many beavers are appropriate on the landscape um, and how many, how many beavers North America can support today is a, re- is a really big question, you know, and one that many scientists are, are investigating. Because obviously, the human footprint is so vast, you know, we've, we've drained so many wetlands, we've paved over so many floodplains, that getting back to 400 million beavers is obviously impossible. But, you know, there is certainly some number between our current 15 million and the, the theoretical 400 million that is feasible. And, and what's an appropriate number? How many beavers can we support? How many beavers... Do we need to reap more of their ecosystem benefits and services? Those are all big questions. And all of those questions are the kinds of things that I was hoping would be raised in this conversation for listeners to consider and ponder, because it's one of the places where I'm interested in this. One of my mentors, who's also been a guest on the show, Wilson Alvarez, he and I had a conversation that was released at the beginning of the year about some work that he's doing to replicate the mechanical action of many of North America's ecosystem engineers. So for him, you know, those are beavers, wolves, ancient humans, and the elephants and other pachyderms that used to roam North America. And so it's, you know, how can we take the lessons of those animals that are no longer necessarily in all these spaces and replicate what they did to the landscape as human beings to engineer what's around us? But then I see the intersection in this conversation about what we can do to support the growth and reintroduction of the animals that do still exist. And also for permaculture practitioners, because it is a holistic system of design that looks at both the micro and the macro from the impact of the individual household all the way up to humanity in the biosphere, that what can we do to take the lessons of ecology as well as the work of people like Ian McHarg and his book, Design with Nature, that was talking all about placing humans in places where they minimize our impact on the natural world around us. And in considering all of these things, how can we design for a future that includes more of the natural world wherever we are, that we can both protect, enjoy, and expand the habitat for all of these animals, as well as living rich, rewarding lives connected to them and with them? That's one of the great questions of our time, obviously. I mean, I'm certainly the, the furthest thing from a, a, a permaculturist or a permaculture expert. But, you know, I, but I do think that, you know, in terms of designing systems that mimic nature and that work with nature, you know, beavers have a lot to teach us. So one of my favorite stories in the book 
that I encountered in Nevada. And, and Nevada is actually this kind of surprising hotbed of pro-beaver activity among farmers and ranchers. You know, it's this very conservative state that you wouldn't really think of as being a place where beavers are, are appreciated. But, uh, you know, because it's such a dry place, you know, anything that's capable of storing and saving water is a, is a huge asset. So there, there's this amazing cluster of pro-beaver ranchers in Northeast Nevada who have become real, real leaders in working with beavers to achieve forage production for their cattle and water storage for, you know, for their, for their, their homes and their, and their uh, pastures. So the example that I, I love to talk about is there's this, this giant ranch uh, in Northeast Nevada called the Wine Cup Gamble Ranch. It's about the size of Rhode Island. And the ranch manager there is this guy named James Rogers, who's a, who's a very smart, progressive, funny, beaver-loving guy. And you know, they, ha- they have a pretty sizable beaver population on, on their property. So most of their, most of their irrigation water on the Wine Cup Gamble used to come from this giant dam that called it the 21 Mile Dam. It was this huge sort of earth dam. And this past winter, the dam blew out during a flood and, and they lost this giant uh, source of irrigation water. But what James is talking about now, instead of rebuilding this big centralized monolith, is actually designing and engineering lots of smaller wetlands all over the property, which will be maintained and inhabited by beavers. So instead of having all of the irrigation water in a single place behind this one giant dam, you know, he's talking about this decentralized beaver-based wetland-oriented system where, you know, he's storing a couple hundred acre feet over here and a few hundred more over there and maybe a thousand over there. And beavers are a really important part of that system. You know, I think that's the kind of solution that to me just makes so much sense. You know, you're moving from this I mean, we know so much about, about the kind of destructive impact that mega dams have on the environment, you know, and I love the idea of moving from this kind of centralized water management system to this much more dispersed, decentralized, natural beaver mimicking one um, that actually relies on the rodents themselves to do a lot of the, the maintenance. And I think that's the, that's the kind of solution that, we're, that more people are talking about. From, you know, all the way from farmers to state water managers, I think these kinds of decentralized ideas are are coming to the fore. Uh, And I think that beavers have a lot to teach us about how those systems should work and function. In addition to reading your book, which gives such a wonderful overview of the history of beavers in North America, the impacts of people on beavers, the conservation movement now in the modern era, are there any additional resources such as other books or organizations that you suggest people connect with if they'd like to learn more about beavers and what they can do to help support this repatriation into the North American landscape? Yeah, there are a lot of great resources out there. So I think that um, there's, a, there's a, a pretty new group that has a lot of great resources and information called the Beaver Institute. And the Beaver Institute is run by a guy named Mike Callahan. And Mike has a great story. He used to be he was a, a former physician's assistant who actually became kind of enamored of beavers uh, about 20 years ago and, and sort of turned himself into one of the country's foremost beaver coexistence experts. So what he does is, you know, he basically goes around. If you complain about beavers flooding your yard or clogging up your culvert or whatever, you know, Mike will come out and install this pipe and fence system called a flow device, which basically drains the beaver pond to a manageable level 
So you can protect your property or your infrastructure, but leave the beavers in place and maintain some amount of pond and wetland. So Mike is a, is a really great guy and uh, has this new nonprofit called the Beaver Institute, which has a lot of, a lot of helpful resources. Um, so that's a, that's a good place to start. There's a group out in California called Worth a Dam. A lot of good puns in the beaver world, you'll, you'll notice, as you're not surprised. A lot of dam puns out there. So Worth a Dam is, is based in, in uh, Martinez, California. It's run by a woman named, named Heidi Perryman who uh, about 10 years ago saved a colony of beavers that moved into the town of Martinez. The town wanted to trap them out. Heidi basically organized this really wonderful advocacy campaign and, and saved them. And, and uh, in the course of doing that, she, she became really a remarkable beaver scholar herself. And, and her uh, nonprofit, Worth a Dam, is kind of this comprehensive beaver news and information source that is really indispensable to, uh, to every beaver lover. Every, every beaver lover in America is aware of Heidi. She's quite a, a forceful and wonderful personality. So Worth a Dam and the Beaver Institute, those are two great places to start for beaver resources. I think that I could talk to you for uh, at least another hour about this, but as always happens with interviews, we seem to run out of time so quickly. And so before we do draw this to a close, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? You know, I think that when, when you think about a beaver, I think a lot of people tend to imagine it in the wilderness somewhere, you know, swimming, swimming in a, in a, a pristine pond with a, a snow-capped mountain in the background. But, you know, more and more beavers, I mean, beavers are these urban animals that live in, in very close proximity to people. There are hundreds of beavers in Portland and Seattle, and, and uh, you know there were, there were beavers in Staten Island earlier this year. A family moved into Staten Island. There are beavers in the Bronx, you know, it's really incredible the, the way that these creatures have come back into our lives. And to me, I think it's so important that, you know, that we make a little space for them, you know, that the benefits they provide us are, are so extreme and, and wonderful. Um, and if we can just learn to, to tolerate them, to coexist with them in these suburban and urban settings, we can just achieve so much. So that's, that's a, a drum that I'm always beating, is to imagine beavers as this, this more urban, cosmopolitan, ubiquitous species than we give them credit for, and to make a little space for them, even in our, our densely settled urban and suburban areas. Well, thank you for that, Ben, and everything else that you shared with us, and for joining me today. Well, thank you, Scott. That was really a pleasure. And that was Ben Goldfarb. Find out more about his work at bengoldfarb.com, and his book, Eager, at ChelseaGreen.com. What I love about this conversation is the way Ben talks about beavers and how we can connect to the world through the stories of others. As I mentioned and he and I touched on, there is a deep value in good nature writing and how it can move us. Beautifully written, we can hear the sound of a beaver's tail on the water or the concern of a conservationist to ensure a mother and her kit stay together. Through those words, we get a sense of place and a loving bond with the other than human that we may never know personally or get a chance to visit. We can care about something beyond ourself or our local biome. If you'd like to read some of the best nature writing available, start with Ben's book. It is absolutely fantastic and one of the finest books I've read in years, as he leads us through the importance of beavers in a fun, witty, and captivating way. You'll learn as much about beavers as you will the people, organizations, and history of human contact and interaction with these charismatic ecosystem engineers. If you'd like to read more writing like this, I then suggest you check out Dan Flores, 
who wrote the foreword for Eager, and Dan's book, Coyote America, A Natural and Supernatural History. And after that, The Beekeeper's Lament by Hannah Nordhaus. Both are excellent looks at the different connections between our lives and those of other animals, both wild and domestic. Should you like to learn more about the other than human and how we interact with that side of the world, read David Abrams' The Spell of the Sensuous. This book has had one of the most significant impacts on me and my understanding of how interrelated our relationships are with the sun and sky, earth and water, fish, fowl, insects, and mammals. How we are not alone, cannot live alone, and would not be human without them. What are some of your favorite works of nature writing? What do you think about this conversation with Ben? Let me know. Leave a comment in the show notes. Give me a call, 717-827-6266. Send me an email, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or drop something in the post, The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. From here, the next episode is an interview recorded by David Bilbrey with Gregory Landway to follow up on a discussion they started at Regen 18 on regenerative business. Until then, spend each day looking for the impacts of rural beavers and their cosmopolitan siblings while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.